Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. Welcome to our Catechism class. We're looking at Lord's Day 15 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an examination of the phrase in the Apostles' Creed that reads, Suffered under Pontius Pilate. That phrase prompts our instructor to ask some very important questions indeed and to raise issues that are critical to the Christian faith. For example, what is the extent of Christ's atonement? In other words, to whom is the salvation that he purchased for us at the cross actually applied? Or, what is the duration and extent of his suffering? Was it just at the cross? Or, what was the nature of that suffering, the true depths of suffering that he endured for me? Or, What was the purpose of his suffering, the relationship between suffering and sacrifice? Or, what are the consequences of his suffering, personally, upon those who are the recipients of the grace that it bestows? And finally, if Christ suffered for us, in body and soul, what are the implications, personally, in my life as a believer? Now, we could never deal with all those important issues in one 20-minute lesson. So we're going to divide this catechism question into several parts, over several lessons. And in this lesson, we'll ask one of the most important questions of all, a question that has divided opinion among evangelicals for endless generations. The question is, for whom did Christ die? Or to put it better, what is the extent of the atonement? We'll look briefly at three main theories about the extent of the atonement, and we shall attempt to get a better understanding of one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. That popular verse, perhaps the most best-known verse, John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Just before we begin, let's read the scriptures, and then let's learn the catechism question and answer. In Isaiah 53 and verse 12 we read these words, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, talking about the Lord Jesus, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, so that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. So our catechist asks us, what do you understand by the word suffered? And the answer we must give in reply is that all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul 
the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race, in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation, and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper River Meta Podcast. So let's get down to it. The vexed question of the extent of the atonement has been an ongoing debate in the visible church for hundreds, if not thousands of years. There are three basic positions. The first of those is that Christ died for everyone, so therefore everyone will be saved. This is known as universalism. People who hold that view, and there are many in the visible church, believe that when Jesus died on the cross, his death procured salvation for everyone whether they know it or not. Whether they believe it or not. After all, if God is all-powerful and Christ's death is for all sinners, then all sinners must surely be saved, even those who are unrepentant sinners. So they would argue that everyone will go to heaven when they die. Muslims, Hindus, Confucians, even atheists. When challenged by texts like John 14 and verse 6, For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. They will simply argue that they agree. That no one will be in heaven without Jesus. And that the atheists and the agnostics and the pantheists and the animists will all be in heaven, not because of their deficient religions, but because of their inclusion in the atonement purchased by Christ on the cross. It was for that very reason that some of the more liberal missionary societies went out to foreign lands not to convert people to Christ, but to improve their education, to make them better and more civilised people, so that they would have a better life on this earth. After all, they argued, their eternal destiny is already secure in Christ. On talk back in Radio Ulster back in 2007, a Methodist minister from East Belfast was being interviewed about the death of a prominent local politician who died at a reasonably early age. I'd only met that politician on one occasion at a funeral, but his views were public knowledge. He'd no time for religion, certainly no time for evangelicalism, certainly no time for Christ and Christianity. The presenter, the late David Dunseith, asked that minister if the politician whom Mr. Dunseith regarded as a good man and a peacemaker, would be in heaven. The minister stuttered for a few seconds before eventually agreeing that, yes, that politician would certainly be there. I was horrified. It was the wrong answer. The correct answer, of course, if he hadn't been sure, would have been, well, we leave that to God to judge. I just wonder, was that minister really a universalist? The second position that's commonly held is that Christ's death is for the whosoever will. We often refer to this as Arminianism. This second position is much better known to us in evangelical Christianity. It's the view that seems to prevail in most modern evangelical churches. The belief that Jesus' death was for everyone in the whole world, but that in order to avail of that atoning work, the sinner must do something, must respond 
must make a decision, or in very extreme cases, like in the American Church of Christ, must obey the gospel, a euphemism for baptismal regeneration. So the Arminian believes that Christ died for all sinners, but that only those who believe will be saved. And there is a difficulty. Why can a sinner who is spiritually rotten to the core, whose heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, make such a decision? The third position is that Christ died for those who are his. Now this is often called Calvinism, because this doctrine was stated quite clearly by the reformer John Calvin, even though it wasn't invented by him. It was the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. Calvinists believe in the total depravity and sinfulness of man, and man's inability to save himself. So therefore God must initiate the process. And he does this even before the foundation of the world, by electing, by choosing out a people for himself, his elect. And in his love, drawing that people to himself, with irresistible, unmerited favour, his grace. They respond to that divine work by believing, and trusting in Christ, by resting upon his finished work on the cross, and now, made fully aware of and utterly abhorring their sinful lost condition, they repent of all their sins, and serve the Lord. And thus Christ's work on the cross is specifically for his own people. As the promise to Joseph is given in Matthew 1 and 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Calvinists believe in what we might call particular redemption, sometimes also referred to as limited atonement. First John 4 and verse 10, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for all our sins. Romans three twenty-five to 26, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins which are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Of course, there are other opinions, but those are the three main views of the extent of the atonement. The second two, Arminianism and Calvinism, always cause controversy among sincere Christian brothers and sisters. Some years ago, the denomination that I belonged to was renewing their constitution, and the existing constitution contained a fairly basic statement of faith, a minimal doctrinal standard, to which each individual independent church must subscribe to remain in fellowship with the others. A committee was set up to review the matter and report to the General Executive Committee, the final draft then to go to the Assembly for debate and ratification. The process has actually never been completed, because when the proposals reached the first hurdle, the Executive Committee, the issue of the extent of the atonement was debated so fiercely by good and godly brethren that no agreement could be reached. One fellow minister, a godly respected man long into retirement, was almost in tears as he defended the Arminian position claiming that he could not stand before his God in good conscience if he belonged to a denomination that did not believe that Christ died for all and that all men everywhere do not have the opportunity to be saved. 
and that's how seriously people take this matter, and how fervently and how passionately they defend their positions. Let's pause for a moment to get our breath and to worship God in the words of Psalm 107, verse 10 to 15, and the tune is Marvin. So how did Zacharias Circinus, our ancient instructor, deal with the problem of determining the extent of the atonement? Well, to cast some light on this, we need to do some history. It was in the 16th century that the elector Frederick III of the Rhineland Palatinate decided that it would be good to have a book of basic instructions for the laity in his dukedom. The Palatinate at that time was predominantly Lutheran but with a growing and vociferous Calvinistic minority and there were doctrinal tensions between the two brands of Protestantism. Some of these tensions centred around the doctrine of the extent of the atonement and the nature and purpose of the sacraments. Ursinus was a Calvinist who was trying to encourage and promote Calvinistic theology without incurring the wrath of the Lutherans. Frederick decided to commission a catechism that would bring the two sides together and bring religious harmony throughout his dukedom. The proposed catechism 
was put together at the University of Heidelberg and credits the faculty there for its composition, but it was largely the work of Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivianus. The New Catechism would combine the best of Lutheran and Reformed theology and would counter the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church by its constant references to Scripture. It succeeded, in my opinion, by introducing a splendid blend of moderate Calvinism, a biblical statement on the atonement that Lutherans could buy into, and with the removal of Lutheran sacramentalism, one that Calvinists would find acceptable, and that later on would become the very basis of the statement of doctrine put forward in the Canons of Dort. Some have questioned whether in Lord's Day 15, Ursinus is going too far to accommodate the Lutherans. As a Calvinist, should he not be clearly stating that Christ died only for the elect? But give careful consideration to what the writers are actually saying. To help us, let's consider John 3 and verse 16 again. One of the most misquoted evangelical proof texts used by Arminians and semi-Pelagians to cast doubt upon the doctrine of particular redemption. Let's remind ourselves of that verse again. John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now think about this. First of all, when proof texting this verse, evangelicals will frequently stress the word whosoever. They will say, Christ died for the whosoever. It sounds really good. Not grammatical, of course. The whosoever has an inbuilt modifier. It cannot be read without the modifier, just because it suits your own theories better. The whosoever is conditional upon belief on the part of the one who would experience Christ's forgiveness. Jesus confirms this in John 6 and 44, where he says, No one can come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So the whosoever believeth is not really a problem, unless you totally ignore the grammar and the modifier, which is very poor exegesis indeed. The second point we need to make about the verse is that whosoever will won't. In Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3 and verse 10 to 12. Now that's a pretty conclusive and damning assessment of man's ability and willingness to come to Christ and seek forgiveness of his own free will in his own strength and ability. And it is not alone in the Scriptures. We're taught in the Scripture that in our unregenerate state we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Colossians 2 and 13, And you, being dead in your sins, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now let's follow the analogy through. Dead people don't and can't make any decision to come to life. The state of deadness precludes that decision. In context, John 3 and 16 
comes immediately after Christ's teaching to Nicodemus on being born again. By any stretch of the imagination, birth is not for the whosoever. It is something that we have no choice in. We have no control over whom our parents are, no control over the date of our birth, our nationality, our status, or our gender. Birth is not something we can choose to do. An equally valid translation of born again is born from above, which gives us the sense of birth being the willful act of our Father, spiritual birth being the willful act of our Heavenly Father. And furthermore, our sinful rebellion against God affects every part of our person. Our bodies and our minds and our emotions and our will are all ruined by sin and are all incapable of comprehending God's means of salvation. Thinking ourselves to be righteous, we go around parading our own good works and worthiness. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 to 22. Unless we are awakened to our true state by the Holy Spirit, we will never accept that we need a saviour and turn to Christ. But the other, and in my opinion, the really difficult part of this verse, is the reference to God's love for the world that he gave his only son. Was Christ's death for everyone in the whole world? If so, are all people saved since Christ died for all? Well, obviously not, otherwise hell would be empty. Or is God not sovereign? Is it that he wants to save us, but he isn't strong enough to do so? But why read more into this than necessary? To say world in a non-Christian context would simply imply the earth, the planet upon which we live. The Greek word translated is the word cosmon, the word from which we get our word cosmos. And it could also simply mean the created world, the earth, the universe. Now some may attempt to argue that Christ's death was obviously not for trees and animal and soil and the created order. It was for people. Yes, that's true. In that mankind is God's special creation, the pinnacle of his creative activity. But there is no doubt that creation, the world, the cosmos, is deeply affected by the Saviour's death. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 tells us that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul is telling us that God loved his creation and that it too one day will be redeemed. Indeed, there will one day be a new heaven and a new earth. But is that the primary meaning of the text when Jesus was speaking about how a sinner may enter the kingdom of God? Is there not a more contextual application of the verse. Let's see a solution. And I believe the solution 
is in the Heidelberg Catechism. You see, I don't insist that anyone else agrees with me on this, but the belief expressed in the Catechism is that Christ's death is sufficient for all the sins of mankind, but it is efficient only for those who are his, by election from before the foundation of the world. In other words, that the fullness of God's wrath for every sin, whatever and whenever, was laid upon Jesus at the cross, and he bore it for us. This is one of the reasons that our Redeemer had to be divine. No mere man could have borne that awful burden. But how is that atoning work applied to our hearts? Well, it's only by grace through faith in Christ. And since grace cannot be earned or deserved, and faith is the gift of God, then only those whom God has chosen can receive the forgiveness obtained by Christ at the cross. Now, this is not to be confused with the so-called four-point Calvinism, which denies particular redemption, and yet at the same time, this viewpoint does not detract from the positive atonement of the elect at the cross, Christ died for my sins. Let's look for a moment at the Canons of Dort, one of the other documents in the three forms of unity. On the second head of doctrine, Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death, this death of God's Son, is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. An article yet under the same head, entitled The Saving Effectiveness of Christ's Death, for it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intervention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his Son's costly death should work itself out in all the elect, in order that God might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation and language all those, and only those, who were chosen from eternity to salvation, and given to him by the Father that Christ should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death. It was also God's will that Christ should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot, or wrinkle. So the canons of Dort in the second point of doctrine in both Article 3 and Article 8 holds this, that Christ's death is sufficient, more than sufficient, to atone for the sins of the whole world, and yet only efficient for those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to Christ by the Father, who are granted faith by him. Now that distinction, sufficient and efficient, satisfies texts like First John chapter 2, verse 1-2, to 2, where John writes, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that sufficient, efficient distinction satisfies texts like 1 John chapter 2, verse 1-2. to My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Simultaneously, it satisfies texts that indicate that salvation, through Christ's atoning death, was not something that's offered on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, but was to fully atone for the sins of the elect. In First John 4 and verse 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 to 26, Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Well, this topic is difficult. If you haven't followed it all, then please don't despair. Just listen to the podcast again if you can. Read the transcript. It's on the website. And check out all the Bible verses and and check out more. Be a good Berean. Join in the conversation in the Heidelberg Catechism Facebook group or contact me directly by emailing bobmcavoy at aol.com. Bye for now.